Ready to go? Um, so as a dad, more so, I mean, as a mom, we get to comfort our kids, right? So we've had some seasons of our kids' lives where they faced some really big challenges and came home and after a lot of really rough days. And so one of the things that I started saying, and sometimes we get to say it and they laugh and sometimes we get to say it and hopefully they actually experience it, is you'll always come home to someone who loves you. You'll always come home to people that love you. Whatever happened in your day, you'll come home to people that love you. Whatever happened with kids at school and how they treated you and if they included you or excluded you, you'll always come home to people that love you. So we're able to comfort them. In my best moments, you know, when they hurt themselves, they come and, and I'll comfort them. Amy's better at this. I'm more the prophet. Like, you know, if you hadn't have been climbing on the chair, you wouldn't have fallen off the chair. You wouldn't be hurt right now. Amy's much better at consoling. But as parents, we get to comfort our kids, right? But we also have to warn our kids sometimes. Not because we don't love them. We warn them very specifically because we do love them. Like if you keep going in that direction, you're going to fall off the chair. If you keep going in that direction, your teeth will rot out, right? Because they like to sneak candy and cakes and all those things. We've got to warn them to keep them on the path that's going to lead to a fuller life and a flourishing life and protect them from things that are dangerous. Not because we don't like them, but specifically because we love them so dearly. As parents, we get to comfort, and as parents, we get to warn. Well, we have a Father in heaven who has made gospel promises to us, and those gospel promises are given to us to comfort us. That's part of what we looked at last week, and that's part of what the thought that Paul will finish this week, is there are gospel promises meant to comfort us that when this tent collapses... It's going to expose an eternal building that cannot be assaulted by the things of this world or the pressures of this life. It comforts us that as we long and we groan and we ache under the fall and under frailty and under temptation, we're groaning for a better covering. We're groaning for a more eternal dwelling that will come and swallow this life up one day. It comforts, but it also warns. That there are gospel promises that are meant to warn us, that they're meant to confront us, they're meant to call us back to faithfulness. And so that's what Paul's going to do today, is he's going to make gospel promises, or rehearse gospel promises that comfort us, like a good parent comforts us. And they're also going to warn us, they're going to confront us. Because good parents warn us and confront us when there's danger ahead. Let's read the text and then we'll get a little bit of background and we'll go from there. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10 is where we are today. So, or therefore, pointing back to what's come before it, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for, the, for what he has done in the body, whether it be good or evil. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who need the comfort of a perfect heavenly father who is an ever-present help in their troubles that you would comfort, that you would show in these promises 
they hold for this life, but more than that, these promises hold for an eternal life. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who are straying from the path or who are beginning the process of temptation that leads to and conceives sin and brings death. I pray that these promises would warn them like a good father warns his children to come back to the path of life, back to the, back to the path of flourishing, back to the path of faithfulness to you and faithfulness to marriages and faithfulness to kids and faithfulness to work and faithfulness to the responsibilities placed in our lives. God, I pray you would comfort and I pray you would warn as your sovereign goodwill determines and knows what each of us need. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're kind of wrapping up one of these major sections we've been in. And the charge seems to be, or the question seems to be, Paul, why are you so bold? Who gives you the right and the authority to be so bold? And a subset of that seems to be like, Paul, you look like death. Why don't you just go check out? Right? You look frail, you're not that powerful, you're not that persuasive, you speak so directly to us, you don't, you know, you don't give us fluff and you don't pander to us, and, and so we don't appreciate the way you talk to us, and when we look at you, there ain't much to you. Why? And so Paul answers in two kind of lines of thought. He answers the first set of questions, why are you so bold? He answers them with the boldness that you're confronting me with is what it took to get the gospel to you, to transform you, to offer you the eternal life we're talking about. You're my letters of recommendation. I have a gospel with a brighter glory than the law. That's why I can't quit. And then in the second set, you know, I look like death to you, yeah. I'm not nearly as charismatic or powerful a speaker as you're used to. I know you've got guys that do it so much better on stage. But the death that you're seeing is the death of Jesus you're seeing. And in seeing the death of Jesus, it's offering you the life of Jesus in its place. That's why I can't quit. I can't quit the mission of God that rescues people from eternity apart from him to eternity with him and a life today or eternal life that begins today with him. I can't stop that. And because this gospel is so beautiful, I cannot stop calling you back to it over and over again when you stray from it. That's why. That's why. And so last week, uh, he used the imagery of this life being temporary. And he said, this life's a tent. It doesn't have a lot of protection to it. It wears out really easily and it collapses when really bad stuff comes across it. This tent will be destroyed. But when it's destroyed, a heavenly eternal building made by God, not with hands, comes in its place. In this tent, we groan longing for the eternal dwelling. We groan under temptation. We groan under our failures. We groan under our weaknesses. We groan under the pressures put against us by the fall. But we groan and long for something. We groan and long for the presence of God perfected in our lives. That was last week, and it bleeds over into this week as he finishes the thought. This temporary life will end by you walking into the front door of home. The real home. The eternal home. The full, rich complete forever home that God has prepared for you. See, this isn't home. That's home. This is exile. This is the long road home. And then he gives those comforts of this certain glory, this life after death, but he also gives this warning. 
There is a judgment seat. And as a believer, you will go stand before it one day to receive exactly what this, the life you lived earned at that moment. And yes, there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there will be reward, gold, hay, precious stone, I mean gold and silver and precious stones. Or there'll be a loss, wood, hay, and stubble that will burn up in that moment. And only what's left will be the reward. So let's look at it. The gospel promises comfort. Our gospel promises comfort us. And gospel promises confront us. Y'all remember Dorothy with her ruby red slippers? There's no place like... There's no place like home. There's no place like home. That's so true, isn't it? There's no place like home. Here's the question, though. And here's the challenge for us as believers. What's home? You see, I think we get very stuck in this world being home. We get very comfortable with the life we're living right now, with the body we're living in right now, with the family we're living in right now, and the house we're living in right now, and the job we're working right now, and that's home. And so there's no place like home right here. And so our greatest focus is how do I make this home the best home possible? Our greatest focus is how do I make this home shine the brightest and look the best and make sure it's the biggest and make sure it's filled with the most amount of stuff possible and make sure it's the newest that it can possibly be. You see, if this is home, we're going to live and invest our lives like this is home. And it's going to show up in the way we spend our resources, right? So the more money I can make, the better. And the more credit cards and debt they will put alongside that, the better. So that I can have the biggest possible house filled with the nicest possible furniture and the best possible decorations parked inside of that three-car garage because two is never going to be enough. You got the one for storage and then another one for storage. And then, you know, your wife gets to park in there. And you get to park in the driveway, right? Because we got so much stuff, we fill our garages with it. Because this world's our home, right? And so we give our resources and, you know, this car works okay, but I really just need the newer one. Everybody at work has the newer one. I have to go in this jalopy and park beside all these people with great cars. Can't do that. It's embarrassing. I had a 15-year-old explorer. <laughs> this isn't in my notes, so it's free. I had a 15-year-old green explorer. And one of my children, won't point them out, one of my children was like, Dad, it's so embarrassing for you to take us to school in that. I'm like, but honey, it's paid for. Right? That's what makes this a great car. No, it, right? Because this world's our home. And we just want to focus our resources. And then our time, if this world's our home, then we're going to give our time a certain way, Right? And so I'm going to spend my time on whatever it is. It's my work because, you know, getting ahead and, and making more money and being more successful and being acclaimed for what I do, then I better just give my life to work or my family, which is great, by the way. You should work and should work really hard and you should care for your family. That's really important. But then family becomes not just important. Family becomes consuming and dominating and we trounce all over the southeast to make sure that they can do what they need to do or we make sure that they get to do something after school every single day of the week because you know they're the next pro athlete, right? The scouts hadn't figured it out yet, but you know that, right? And so if this world is our home, we're going to live a certain way. But let me just ask you the question, what if this world isn't our home? 
What if this world is temporary? What if that's home? In the presence of Jesus' home, how would that change how we spend our resources? Instead of buying our house because it's the biggest and the nicest, we might buy our house to say, what neighbors is he placing me next to? How big a room is there for a table for people to fill up in discipleship and fill up in mission and fill up with family or people we hope to be family one day? What if we made our decisions of our home based on, is there a community of faith around this home that I can find and have support with? And then what if I made the decisions on buying my home to say, how much margin does it leave for me to be generous into the lives of others if I buy this home? What if I made the same decisions with my cars and the same decisions with my investments and the same decisions with my savings, my resources now are, how do I live in such a way that there's margin to bless people with? If this world isn't our home, we'll build in that margin. And, and then our schedules, right? We're all busy. But are we busy about what matters? If that world is the home, then how can I prioritize my schedule so there's room for people? Because I can't move any of my stuff up there with me. But I sure can move people up there with me. And I can be surrounded by the people that my life has been given to. If that's home. And so the first point is it comforts us that when we exit this life, we go home. When we leave this life, we go home. We go home to be with Jesus forever. Let's look at it in the text. So he starts with so, which is a therefore, and he points back to what comes before it. And one of the verses I didn't get to last week, but that it really sums up the passage is this mortal will be swallowed up by life. Everything that is frail about me, everything that is temptable about me, everything that the pressures of this world can go against me and stress and stress me and tempt me to fail and, and, and um, become trials in my life, everything about that's mortal. It's temporary. It's susceptible to dangers. It's susceptible to sin and temptation. One day, what is mortal will get gobbled up. By what is really life. Life will get swallowed up with life. Kind of life. Almost life will get swallowed up by what is real life. And full life and rich life. We call it eternal life. We call it abundant life. So because everything about you will get swallowed up by real life one day. God's promised it. The one who prepared this for us is God himself. And by the way, the way he guaranteed that is he put a deposit in you to guarantee that he's going to finish the work one day. And he put the deposit of the Holy Spirit in you as his firm promise, as the earnest money that says, I'm coming back to complete everything that I said. If that's true, if those comforts are true, if those promises are true, if they hold when it matters in this life and it holds when it matters as we walk into the life to come then it should have an effect. And that's what Paul is saying. It has an impact. Because those things are true, we're always of good courage. What's the response when you can kill me and promote me at the same time? What's the response when you burn down a house that God's going to burn down one day anyways and stick me into heaven in the process? What can you punish a man? What can you punish a woman when that is true? And that's his point. We are of good courage. Because all you can do is collapse a tent and promote me to the building. 
right? And so we are always of good courage. And so, Paul, why don't you quit the mission? Don't you have enough whip marks on your back? No, I don't have enough whip marks on my back because I still got a back for them to whip. And so courageously, in the face of hardship, I'm not quitting the mission. Paul, come on, dude. We got better teachers. You can just go do your work somewhere else. We're, we're good here. We're comfortable here. We're doing fine here. No, you're not doing fine. You can slander me. You can hate me. You can reject me. But I cannot quit calling you back to gospel faith, faithfulness. I cannot quit confronting your sin. In the face of hardship, I am of good courage and I don't quit. And so this isn't just for Paul though, is it? Because if you have eternal promises, if you too live in a tent that will collapse one day, and if you too have a building prepared by God for you that will last forever, and if you too groan, longing, awaiting your eternal dwelling, then you too have a mission and you too have a discipleship mission that you're to be about. And so will you press on when it's hard to keep discipling people? Will you press on when it's hard to keep calling people back to faithfulness? Will you press on when it's hard to keep serving and sharing and declaring the gospel to people that don't yet know it? If we really, really get the truths of this section, it will produce courage in our lives. Not weakness, not fear, not shrinking back. It'll produce courage gracious, humble, bold courage. And that's what Paul, that is what Paul is saying. We are very courageous. Why? Because we know. And when he's saying we know, he's saying there is a truth in place. And if that truth is in place, it supports courage. It doesn't take away. What is the truth that's in place? We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And so the truth that makes us courageous is I'm at home in the body, but that puts distance between me and Jesus. I'm at home in the body. That means I'm not sitting in the presence of Jesus fully awake and fully alive. And so as long as that's the case, I'm waiting promotion. I'm waiting for it to be finished. I'm of good courage because I know that this is temporary. I know this isn't home. And so take the stuff that's temporary from me because I'm waiting on home. I'm walking towards home. I'm in, I'm in exile, getting towards home. Now, that does not mean we're estranged from Jesus, right? Let's make sure we get this right. Like, it does not mean we're out of fellowship with Jesus. It does not mean we, we don't have a union with Jesus. What's it saying? It's saying there is more to our experience of Jesus than we can have in this body and in this life. You see, one day... We will be like him, First John, because we will see him as he is. Right now, we have to live in faith fellowship with Jesus, but one day, for all the rest of our days and for all of eternity, we will live in sight fellowship with Jesus. And so, to be at home in the body is to be distant from the fullest possible fellowship with Jesus, from the fullest possible experience of Jesus, from the fullest possible redemption that he will complete one day when we walk out of this life into the next. We're at home in the body, which means there is a distance between us and Jesus. And if Jesus is our aim, and if Jesus is our desire, and if Jesus is our treasure, we don't want that to be there anymore. And he goes on a, on a little bit of a digression to explain that. For we walk by faith, not by sight. What is he saying? 
He's saying that our fellowship with Jesus is now the fellowship that comes from faith. It's not the fellowship that comes from sight. We don't live our Christian lives seeing Jesus physically in full redemption yet. We don't live our Christian lives with the perfect, full, total experience of Jesus yet. We live by faith. So what is faith? Hebrews 11, or first chapter 4, he talks about it this way. Fixing our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. That's a good place for faith to start. It is seeing what you can't see. It is living so believing what God has said that it is like living in the world that I can't see as if that's real. And the world that I can see is less real and less important than that one. Hebrews 11 gives us a good definition of faith for this. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Faith is, a, uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. So faith is rock, solid, guaranteed, assured confidence on what hasn't happened yet, but God said will happen. God has made promises. God has said how it will be. God has said what's going to happen. And faith is living like it is absolutely rock solid, no guesswork true. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the guaranteed confidence of what hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen because God said it's going to happen. Do we live like God's promises are true? That's faith. Do we live like it's really true, not kind of true? Do we live like it's really true, not kind of partially true, or it could happen, I think it's maybe 80-20? Or do we live like it is guaranteed, take it to the bank, true? And then the second part is not just what's going to happen in the future, the future promises of God true, but the second part, it's the conviction of things not seen. There is a whole world that is bigger and better and more real than what you walk around and look at. It is more beautiful and more majestic and more real, more substantially real than what you walk around in every day and what you drive around in every day and the people that you meet every day. And faith is living like the unseen world is more real and matters more than the seen world does. Now that's tough. I feel it when you reject me. I feel it when I have struggles with my wife. I feel it when my kids and I are having problems. I feel it when there's stress and pressures at work. Don't you? So what's faith? Faith is like there's this much bigger world and that's what really matters. And there's this much bigger God who is right there on the scene doing everything. We walk by faith today. We don't walk by sight. It won't always be that way, right? But it's that way now. We walk by faith. We walk seeing the unseen like it's real. We walk knowing that the guarantees of God are guaranteed, not just hopeful possibilities. We walk by faith and not by sight. We follow Christ by faith, not by sight. We fix our eyes on Christ by faith, not by sight. We know Jesus by faith. 
But one day, one day, next verse, we'll know him by sight. And so look at it. So we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. Why? Because we'd rather be away from the body. Because then we would be at home with the Lord. He's making a preference statement. Yes, I'm of good courage because this isn't my desired condition. I'm sick of this body. I'm sick of this life. I would rather be done with the body because being done with the body means faith goes away and sight takes its place. And knowing Jesus by sight and loving Jesus by sight and treasuring Jesus by sight and the full eternal pleasures that come from the presence of God only and are at the right hand of God only, those are mine and they're mine forever as soon as this body goes away. I'd rather be done. I think one of our biggest challenges as Christians though We don't know that we'd rather be done. It's kind of comfortable here. Kind of like it here. I kind of like the way I've set the tent up. I've kind of finally gotten the tent into a condition that it coasts a little bit. And things are pretty easy. And we wouldn't rather be at home with Jesus. I don't think we see Jesus that clearly yet by faith. We don't know Jesus that intimately yet. The distance between us and Jesus is so grieving that it would be better. For it to be closed, for the gap to be closed. But there's something about going home, isn't there? There's something about going home. I still remember growing up, this was kind of the main home. You know, we were a little bit topsy-turvy as a family, but my grandmother's home is where we did holidays. And when we did, especially Easter is what I remember, but when we did holidays, all the extended family, the people we didn't see all year long except for at the holidays... People we did see a little bit more often, everybody converged on the one house. And of course, there was the adult table, and there was the kid table. And unfortunately, before I got promoted to the adult table, you know, grandma had to, um, you know, had to move into a, to a home, and so I never got promoted to the adult table. I'm not bitter, it just happened. But there's a feeling about going home. There's a feeling about remembering going home. That it's hard to quite replicate anywhere else, isn't there? So when Dorothy says there's no place like home, we get it. Because all of us have some memory somewhere back there or some missing memory somewhere back there that we wish were there. That feeling. And I believe that feeling is one of the gracious gifts of God to taste something in this life that makes you long for the next one. That going home gives you a taste of longing to go home forever. And that going home forever, yes, there'll be reunions. And I'm sure it'll be amazing. But that's not the amazing part about going home. The amazing part about going home is going to be in the presence of Jesus. The desire of every redeemed part of your being being completed by seeing the face of Jesus and being with Jesus and being like Jesus. We are comforted by these promises and that comfort should produce courage in your life. Courage to be about discipleship, courage to be about mission, courage to be about people. Even when that hurts and even when that brings this extra challenges in your life, because it will. They're people. And you happen to be one too. And I'm sure, I mean, as lovely and nice as each of you are, you've probably been the problem for some other person, right? Just guessing. I know I have been. As long as there's people, there's problems attached to that. 
to desire to keep going even though it's hard because the the promises that are there forever. The second part of this passage, though, is it's not just comfort. It also confronts us. The gospel confronts us. We are empowered to please Jesus, but we will all stand before his judgment seat. We are empowered to please Jesus, but we will all stand before his judgment seat. I want you to think about something for a second that you probably don't think about a lot. Uh, There's a guy, and I don't know who it is. That's why I just quote a guy. The unexamined life is not worth living. But I think we often live unexamined lives. And so I just want you to think about this. What is your big goal in life? What's the big target you're aiming for? And whether you have a conscious written one or not, you have one. And everything else about your life orients around that. And so I want to invite you into an examination. What's your goal? I want to invite you into an examination. What's your aim? And if I had to guess, you had good, you have good ones. Like you're not sitting there uh, with a whole set of, uh, of uh, sinful desires and aims and goals that you want to, you know, have world domination. You probably have a set of really good desires that look an awful lot like family. And your family growing up and having a good life and a good job and a good family and a good marriage and a, good things happen to them with a good retirement. And you probably have a lot of visions of life that, that kind of rest for yourself. Like, you know, I, I want to be pretty comfortable. I want to make a little more money. I want to be more successful. And as I grow in my success, you know, I do want to be able to have more leisure time. And, you know, I, I I'm not there yet, but thinking about the day one day when my kids are gone and like they come back with grandkids and I get to say, oh, they're so great. And they get to go home with you. Like that sounds really great. And that is an awesome, awesome thing. It's just not an ultimate thing. What's ultimate? What's your ultimate aim? And my guess is we get very trapped in those aims that are good, but those aims that are not ultimate. That's my guess is what's going on in most of our lives. And we've oriented our lives around a lower goal. One of the old confessions answers that question this way. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's an ultimate aim. And my buddy Piper hadn't quoted him in a while. So I just want to make sure I put him out there again. He changes one word to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That's something you should give your life to. That's something you should aim your life at. And so don't aim low with your marriage. Don't aim low with your parenting. Don't aim low with your family. Don't aim low with your recreation and your hobby and your free time. Don't aim low with your work life. Don't spend all the consuming time of your life on low goals. Aim at what's ultimate. And as you aim at what's ultimate, these lower goals fall into a more beautiful and a more glorious and a a better place. When you aim at an ultimate goal of glorifying God and enjoying him forever, it doesn't make your marriage less. It makes it more. It doesn't make your parenting and what you desire for your kids less. It makes it more. It doesn't make your aspirations at work less. It makes them more. It doesn't make the free time where you get to recreate and enjoy and have hobbies less. It maximizes your enjoyment of those. So quit aiming low, Chris. Quit aiming low, church. Give your life to the pleasure of God. And let nothing else take ultimate place. 
think that's what Paul is saying here. So we've had a chapter plus of gospel promises and gospel glory, and it's a brighter glory than the law, and it transforms people, and, and, it, and it gives them an eternity, and it gives them the presence of God. Promise, promise, comfort, comfort. But you know, you're a person, and I am too. I like the comfort part of the gospel so much better. And I can tend to shift out of gear and take it into neutral a while. There's grace after all. Jesus did all the work. I don't have to do anything. He finished it. It's accomplished. I can rest on grace. And it's so easy to take it out of gear. And so the gospel doesn't just comfort you to face whatever this life brings. The gospel also confronts you and says, don't waste your life. Don't be aimless with your life. Don't meander your way through life with no real purpose. Indifferent to the things that really matter. Indifferent to God himself. Don't do that. Because that's not the gospel either. Look at him as he talks about it. Whether we are at home in the body. Whether we are away from the body. We make it our aim to please him. What is the driving force of my life? What is the aim of my life? What is the goal of my life? The pleasure of God. Specifically in this context, he's probably saying to keep about my mission that's been entrusted to me to reach the nations as well as to disciple the saved and call them into faithfulness. And so that's his specific pleasing God that he's probably referencing here. But what is your pleasing of God? What's my pleasing of God? What's Paul's bigger picture categories of pleasing God? Did you know without faith it's impossible to please him? Faith has got to be a definitely one of those big, if I'm going to please God, faith is involved. Did you know that love is also involved? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. That was the Hebrew main commandment, Deuteronomy, and it's the Christian main commandment. You shall love God with your whole being. So love's got to be in there if we're going to please God. Do you know enjoyment's in there also? Rejoice in the Lord always. That's a command. And in case you didn't get it the first time, again I say rejoice. So if we're going to please God, we will not do it apart from a life of faith, seeing the unseen, grabbing hold of the promises of God and holding on to them as real, as if you hold them in your hands. And you're not going to do it if you don't love him. He is not looking to enlist an army of soldiers who march in step Because they're afraid of him. Although there's the component of that. Or who march in step because it's their obligation to do that. Or to pay him back for the infinite riches of grace that are totally beyond our ability to pay back. That doesn't please him a bit. People who believe him and love him. And because they believe him and they love him, they enjoy him. That's why our mission statement to enjoy the glory of God, to treasure Christ supremely, that he is not pleased by anything less than this. But if we have that, if we love him, if we really believe him, if we enjoy him, we will obey him. We won't be hearers of the word only deceiving ourselves. We'll be doers of the word. Right? And so if you want to please God, make it your aim to believe him With full faith, ask for more faith, to believe more of him, to see more of him, to see more of what is unseen and real. If you want to please God, then cultivate a heart that is so deeply in love with him that anything that would quench the flames of love for him or anything that would take a bit of distance and add it between you and him is something you would war against with all of your being. 
And anything that would take your joy and delight that comes in him and give it to some stinking phone screen, distracted, wandering through life, you would war against that. If you'll do that, obedience will just happen. Obedience will be the natural byproduct. We make it our aim to please God. Fully convinced of the promises, we please him, but we're also motivated by another factor, and I don't think it's as different as you may think when you read it. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's a motivator, and I don't believe it's the motivator of fear. I believe it's the motivator of loving delight. Why? Because the judgment seat of Christ is not simply, you are going to be judged, you better be terrified. That already is gone from you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your works, lest any of you should boast. You're not going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, trembling that he may cast you out forever, because Jesus accomplished the work, not you, and so you're secure in the moment of judgment. So you're not going trembling in fear. So what is the judgment? And why is it a motivator for your life to be thrown in the direction of pleasing God? What is it? It is the evaluation of God as he calls you up one-on-one, not in mass, not in a group, not in a church, one-on-one, gazes into your eyes, sees every idle word and every deed that you have done both for him and feeding those and visiting those in prison and giving water to the least of them. And he sees every one of those. And what you've done in the body that is good, he will reward He will commend, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so you see that it's not simply a matter of terrifying judgment because you will be given what you're due for what you did in the in the pursuit of pleasing him. What was good about your life, you will gain reward from it. But in case we do slip into a bad notion to think that what we do doesn't matter because of grace. What we do doesn't matter because we have been saved by the finished work of Jesus And so we live kind of slack and we live indifferent and we live aimless. Whatever you do in the body that is evil, you will also receive the due for that. You will also receive the the just recompense for that as well. So we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will be rewarded. Or we will have consequences. There seemed to have been a philosophy in the day of, of Corinth that's probably pretty prevalent with us too. And it's the philosophy that What I do in the body doesn't really matter. Whether it's be because of grace or because, you know, the work is finished or because of whatever. What I do and how I live doesn't really matter. I can be good with God and live however I want. So if you read through the Corinthian church, I can be good with God and yet there be rampant sexual immorality in the church, in my life. I'm good with God. I can be good with God and I can be factioning, gossiping, complaining, Tearing the church into groups. I'm good with God. There is nobody that has split a church in America that was sitting there thinking, you know what? I am the devil's emissary right now. I'm the devil's ambassador. They think they're perfectly justified. They think they and Jesus are doing great with each other while they tear Jesus' church apart. And there's a war against that in this text. The deeds that are done in your body are not irrelevant to your relationship to God. They're not irrelevant to a future reward and a future consequence of your life. And so the Corinthians could sue each other. I'm good with God. 
the Corinthians could, um, what were some of the other things? You know, the, the whole thing, like, do not deceive yourselves, but the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. First Corinthians chapter six. And so they think they can do this whole list of things and be fine with God. And don't we like, I'm good with God. All I do is sit here. I'm good with God. It's irrelevant what I looked at last night. I'm good with God. It doesn't matter what I'm doing in my family life. And this is a very clear and direct assault on the notion that we can be right with God and live a life that is absent of morality and obedience. Because what is done in the flesh, what is done in the body, there will be reward for and there will be consequence for. First Corinthians 3, I think, gives a great image that kind of wraps this up. <laughs> this point up. He images the works of the church, and I think by extension our works, as there's gold, silver, and precious stones. And then he images the church's work, and he images our works, and say there's wood, hay, and stubble. And he pictures the judgment as a fire burning across the landscape of what the church has done and burning across the landscape of what we've done. And what's left is what matters. What was gold about our life and our service to Jesus and our life and our service to others? What was silver about our life and service to Jesus? What was precious stones? Because that's what's going to last. That's what's going to walk into eternity as reward. That's what is going to earn from the throne of God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. A few practical things as we close out. I'll preach my notes, sorry. Live by faith, not by sight. Live by faith, not by sight. Train your heart to long for and to see and to fix its gaze on the unseen world. The world where God is. The world where the gospel is operating. The world where the kingdom is operating. Learn to, to see that more than to see the circumstances, the face circumstances of what's around you. Because God is up to stuff that you have no clue about in your worst days, your worst trials, your worst failures, and your best ones. Live by faith that God is still faithfully completing the work that he began in you. And he will faithfully complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus. Live by faith and not by sight. Examine your aims. Is it for self? Is it for family? Is it for advancement? Is it for career? Is it for retirement? Is it for stuff? Is it for the glory of Jesus? Because if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. If you aim at the wrong thing, you got absolutely no chance. But at least if you're aiming your life, throwing your life in the right direction, then you've given God everything he needs to use your life to go home and Spend it with people that you spent your life on. More than that, to spend it with the Jesus that ransomed your life and brought it there. Examine your aims. And then last, remember your end. This life will end one day. The time for your work will end. The time for you to sit down. I don't know how it's going to be. Probably not sit down. You probably won't want to. Like Jesus is right there. He's the light of the city. His throne is over everything. There is a tree of life. There is water of life flowing out of his throne. I don't think you're going to want to sit down. But if you want rest, don't rest now. Now's too short. 
Night's coming when none of us can work. Right? Rest then. Spend eternity in the joyful rest of your master. Don't rest now. Look, I know you've been hurt probably, and that's maybe why you're sitting down. Or I know you've been somehow, maybe it's offended, maybe told you weren't needed. I don't know why. But you've allowed yourself to believe it, or you've allowed yourself to respond to it in a way that says, okay, I'm going to sit here a while. Life's too short to sit down. Eternity's too long for us to sit down. Remember, this life will come to an end, and then it's home. It's home forever. Let's pray. Father, comfort us with these words that we would not grieve as people without hope. Confront us.